Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the WorkLife Podcast. This is your host, Agnes, and today my guest is Ian McRae. Hi, Ian. Hi, how are you? So Ian uh, has been introduced to us by Kogan Page because he's one of the co-authors of a new book, which is called Myths of Work. Otherwise, Ian is an organizational psychologist, a consultant and an author. He also authored the High Potential Trait Indicator, HPTI, which is a personality test for identifying leadership potential in the workplace, together with Professor Adrian Furnham. And this HPTI is now distributed by Thomas International and it has been used by tens of thousands of people in companies around the world. And so um, Ian is the author of four books, including High Potential, How to Spot manage and develop talented people at work, motivation and performance, a guide to motivating a diverse workforce, and this latest one that we're going to be speaking about, myths of work, the stereotypes and assumptions holding your organization back. And I'm very happy to have you, Ian, on the podcast because a lot of the work we're doing is actually busting those myths. <laughs> and so your book um, has been written in a very concise structure. It busts 27 myths, um, really honest and, and straight to the point. And then all the chapters conclude with some practical advice that people can use immediately in the workplace. But before we go and tackle uh, some of these myths in the book, I would like to, to ask you to introduce yourself and, and tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what drives you, your career, and what led you to writing this book. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I've always been interested in organizational psychology, work psychology from the very start of my life, kind of school life, university life. Um, so I went into um, university studying psychologies specifically organizational psychology. Um, I studied, I'm Canadian, so I studied in Canada for my undergraduate degree at the University of British Columbia. Um, after that, I went into kind of research, uh, research methods in organizational psychology at University College London. Um, and I've lived in London and in the UK now for about eight years. And my passion, my interest about psychology has always been 
related to work and the workplace. Just because we spend so much of our time at work, work is an important part of who we are and how we get meaning from life and how we interact with other people. We meet so many people at work, learn interesting things. There's so much going on in the workplace, especially in the contemporary workplace, that I've always been really interested in those kind of practical elements and applications of psychology. So what impact does work have on us? What do we get from our work? What do we put into our work? Um, and how does it affect people, groups, individuals? Um, and so just because work is such has such a pervasive impact on people's kind of lives and psychology, it's always been my focus. Um, and in my work and writing these books um, with my co-author Adrian Furnham, I've been really interested in looking kind of practical implications of the science and the research, as well as what actually goes on kind of on the ground floor of the workplace. So what do we know about psychology? And then how can we translate that into something kind of useful, interesting and relevant um, that we can put to use at work? Great. And, and I think especially what's so important, because there's so much written about these trends that are really impacting profoundly the way we work and where people go to work. And there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of quite harmful stereotypes as well about some of the age groups, which I will ask uh, you later. But what, what did you envision to, for this book to be, you know, the purpose? What was it that you wanted to achieve with, with this myth-busting? The main thing was to distill quite a few ideas, some of which can be complex. And as you've said, there's been a lot written on them in a lot of detail, but really to distill the myth into a kind of concise sentence and then to ask the question, is this true or is this not true? Um, and then what impact does this myth have on our workplace? And what should we be doing either to change the myth or to work differently to make workplaces better for the people who are in them? Um, so most of the chapters are four or five pages. They're quite concise. They're meant to get to the point really quickly and to offer really practical advice for people, managers, leaders, or people in the workplace about what you should know and then what you need to do about it. How do you think um, these myths influence managers and people's um, experience of at work? Do you think this causes them, or what I would imagine that maybe it causes them anxiety or or they don't know how to respond what what is it that that you think is the impact of people just being kind of left in the dark about these trends yeah that's a good question actually because i think there's a couple of components to that some of these myths some of which might be about gender or sexuality might be kind of preconceived notions or assumptions that people might not really think about. It might just be in the back of their mind about what type of people should or can do what work um, or who, what type of people work well in what environments that may be complete myths. But it may not be something that people are consciously thinking about. It could be more of an unconscious bias that kind of shows up less overtly. Um, but I think some of the myths are much more kind of overt and discussed and in some cases are um, get a lot of public dis discussion. There's a lot of discourse about them. One of the recent ones, um, one of the chapters is on <laughs> sex and romantic relationships in the workplace, that um, which we talk about kind of things like kind of consent and what is appropriate behavior, what is inappropriate behavior. This was written about a year ago, so there's that's yeah, <laughs> and now it's in the news. <laughs> yeah, it's in the news much more and in a much more severe way than it was initially. Um, but I think you're right, too, that some of these topics are difficult to talk about. And there's a lot of kind of anxiety and nervousness about what can I say? What am I allowed to say? What topics are appropriate for discussion? And 
if we need to discuss it, how, how do I even go about talking about it? So I think, again, some of the what we include in the book here gives a good framework to saying what is appropriate in the workplace. And here's how these difficult issues and some of them are difficult issues to discuss. Here's how they can be approached and brought up and addressed properly in the workplace instead of ignoring them or being afraid of them. Mm, I think that's very, very important work because it is, as you said, um, we need to talk about these issues at work. Uh, as First of all, because we spend so much time there, but also because it's happening. So it's almost um, a continuation of this patronizing behavior by management not to speak with employees about these issues that are just there. And I, I talk a lot about, you know, uh, for me, the important thing is to treat people like adults at the workplace. And it just clicked now in my head that basically what your book is also doing is is helping this kind of adult to adult conversation and, and leveling, you know, the, the conversation to to something that will actually, you know, resolve conflict, maybe internal or among teams and, and definitely tackle some of these uncomfortable things. But in order to grow, in order to develop, they need to be addressed. Yeah, and people need to know that they can talk to their managers or the HR department about some of these difficult issues, right? If it's one of those things that's kind of shoved off in the corner or something that people don't feel they can talk about in the workplace, it's much harder to even deal with or address problems that might be going on. Absolutely. Now, maybe going into the the actual book, I, I found that very intriguing because it's structured around these 27 myths. It's incredibly concise and clear. Um, but how did you, uh, what was the process that led you? How did you come to these myths? How did you choose which ones to tackle? Um, yeah, that's a good question because it's a bit of a mixed bag really with um, myths ranging kind of all over the place of different workplace topics. Um, so we used a few different criteria, really. It was originally substantially longer list than 27 chapters, um, but we combined some, we cut some down, we tried to make them the most relevant and practical ones that were really pertinent to organizations. So for one of the criteria was just things that are really commonly talked about. Um, so kind of stereotypes about millennials is an example of that. There's lots written on it. People are discussing it in the workplace. Most people have an opinion. A lot of people have a fairly strong opinion on it. So any myths that were just very pervasive at work, we wanted to tackle throughout the book. We talked about some of the other emerging trends, everything from, you know, mindfulness and motivation to different kind of um, approaches to improving well-being or trying to improve performance in the workplace. Um, because some of those, especially because they're new, have more mixed evidence on and they've got advantages but there's also disadvantages for example to mindfulness which aren't always talked about um, who it's appropriate for and making sure it's done properly instead of just kind of embracing a fad but not um, understanding what the purpose is behind it so we want to talk about some of those emerging issues that are up and coming and there's still more research to be done on um, and what any myths that had particularly important implications for the workplace. So looking at things like gender and sexuality and how that impacts hiring or firing or development opportunities, I thought was particularly important because it does have a very real impact for many people in the workplace. And then the last one was just kind of discussing topics and framing them um, if they're difficult ones to discuss. So here's the framework for approaching these and how you can talk about it at work. Mm. I mean, I'm particularly glad that you brought up this issue of mindfulness because that has been a bit of a pet 
peeve of mine, <laughs> even though I, I, I think it has its, its merits and, and I think I'm practicing it myself. But in a way, I almost felt that when this big boom or, or fads of, you know, now every company is offering yoga classes and fruit bowls and mindfulness and coaching, but it doesn't really address burnout rates or people's experience. And, and I think it's almost, you know, we, we leave the, the container, which is work um, as it is, with its constraints and with its faults, but we try to fix the people. What is your take on this? Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, there are benefits of mindfulness, and I've, I've done mindful practice, my, mindfulness practice myself, and yoga, and I think it is really useful in certain circumstances for certain people. Um, but one of the things we talked about in the book, too, is that mindfulness, if you really hate your job and there's no solution for it, being mindful and aware of it is not going to help you, and it's probably going to make you feel better about it. So there's a lot of these trends that are coming up and emerging that have some level of usefulness if they're practiced well and effectively, probably with um, an instructor or a tutor or a mentor who's really knowledgeable about it. But they're not necessarily magic bullets that are going to make everyone better or happier or, you know, higher performers overnight. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, I would like to ask you one question. Um, out of all the myths, which is the one that really bugged you? Which is the one where you think you thought, okay, I need to tackle this because this is just the worst? <laughs> yeah, well, this is partially personal for me. The millennial myth has really irritated me. And it could be because I am one and I'm oversensitive or something. But <laughs> <laughs> um, overall, the general generational stereotypes myths do annoy me quite a lot just because they're so pervasive. They're discussed a lot, often with a, without a lot of insight. Um, and they tend to be really flat stereotypes of different generations. Um, so that is kind of my biggest pet peeve. That's the one that I've got most irritation out of and most satisfaction from trying to debunk. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I noticed that also in the book and, and especially just these weeks, there was this uh, video going around on LinkedIn and a lot of professional contacts of mine have also um, shared it. it. It was this interview on how to interview a millennial and it was just incredibly offensive. And I think that when people talk about ageism, somehow we still think that this can only be towards elderly, but this was real ageism towards young people. and. I have a lot of millennial friends and unfortunately I'm no longer one. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think, you know, they're some of the most hardworking people. They don't take anything for granted. They come into a situation where they know they have to really work hard to, to get to places and they're very, very talented and authentic. And I think that there's still a, a big gap in, in how we view or embrace or support this generation. Yeah, I agree with that fully. And we did, Adrian and I did some research into this too, just looking at kind of values and motivation and potential differences between different generations. And we did a study of a few thousand people. Um, are there generational differences in motivation? And we found essentially no differences. Um, and there's a lot of research and evidence that has been done um, across both Europe and the US to back that up. So even though there's these myths of generational differences, there's a lot of research that shows there aren't really any generational differences when you look at kind of 
broad generations as a whole of kind of chunks of 20, 25 years. The other thing I should say is that, although I think you're completely right, the millennial stereotype is a stereotype with not a lot of basis, in fact, in any age group or any generation, there will be a few people who do fit the stereotype. So there will be some people in their 20s who might be a bit kind of lazy or entitled or, you know, fit some of the other stereotypes. But there's also people who are 70 or 80 years old who are overly entitled, expect to get what they want, social media obsessed, um, kind of volatile characters that it doesn't necessarily mean it's because they're that age that they have those characteristics. It's just there's people of all ages and all groups who would fit those stereotypes, but not because the entire group is like that, if that makes sense. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe taking um, the conversation to another myth that we already addressed very briefly, which was about sexuality and gender. And there are, of course, numerous initiatives about diversity and inclusion on the one hand, and also boosting the number of women in leadership uh, positions. And there's a growing evidence that um, this has an impact on performance, on innovation, customer satisfaction. But I would really like to take your um, your take on it because, first of all, you what? Why did you feel that there's a myth that has had to be busted, and, and perhaps what is it, if you can say? And also, in your experience working with companies in especially with your work on high potentials or, or, you know, performance, do you find evidence, do you find that tackling gender inequalities can actually contribute to, to higher performance? So these are two questions in one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, both really good questions. That um, I think I'll start with the first one, which is essentially why is this important to focus on this myth of kind of about gender equality or inequality. And one of the reasons I think it's really important is I started this chapter with a discussion of why hiring inequality does still exist. Because one of the questions I get asked a lot is, is this still a problem? Isn't the gender gap solved? Isn't the pay gap solved? Don't we have equality now? Starting out that chapter just with a lot of the studies that have been done about gaps between hiring or pay or how performance reviews happen, um, that shows there, it, there isn't equality yet, or there isn't necessarily fairness yet. And one of the best, there's a whole bunch of examples in the first couple paragraphs of the book, but one of the best ones um, was some research done with orchestras. And so one of the challenges of doing research, looking at equity or equality between different groups, is how do you know that the decisions are actually down to performance versus based on stereotypes or assumptions or misconceptions or anything else. And the research with orchestras is really interesting because there's been some research about orchestras over the last 10 years doing blind additions. And so one of the things that they found is because orchestras tend to be dominated by you know, 80, 90 percent um, men, whereas when they did blind additions, they got complete gender balance of who they selected to go into the orchestra. So, and that's a kind of example of work where if you're not looking at the people, if you can't tell their gender or any other physical features, then you can still judge their performance easily because you're just not looking to the person, looking at the person, you're judging the quality of their work. Um, and so that was good evidence. And there's been stuff done in universities and financial in institutions that shows there is still kind of pervasive and often unconscious bias towards people of different genders and sexualities, and even we'll go into ethnicities as well. So that is definitely still an issue. So then the question is, then kind of how do we approach that? What do we do about it? 
because again, there is lots of evidence showing that more diverse, more diverse workforces do have improved performance. People with different backgrounds do bring a different or a broader range of knowledge that as part of a team can be very helpful to organizations or teams or groups or companies. Let me take you, just let me pick up, pick up on this here. I think you said something that was very, very important. You said that there's lots of evidence that people with different backgrounds contribute to a higher performing team as part of a team. And I think that's very important because I would imagine the way recruiting is done is you, they always just recruit that one individual with this endless list of, you know, job specifications and requirements, this one perfect new hire has to have instead of looking at more holistically in terms of a team and what differences and really differences there are in the team in terms of cognitive difference, in terms of background, in terms of the story of the people, their approach to problem solving, to their points of views. So to make the team one whole uh, and not every individual has to fit this perfect job description that, you know, in, in, in Dutch they say they're looking for the sheep with the five legs. I thought that was really important what you just said there and perhaps hasn't been expressed, <laughs> you know, so so clearly before. And, and I think that's a very, very important thing, right? Yeah. And that's a really good point. I think that links up with the other issue of what some people have called kind of the leaky pipeline of talent. So if you talk, talk about specific talent pipelines that may be you know, from a specific group of people and you're ignoring all of the other talent in the workforce in the talent pool, then you're missing out on a whole bunch of potentially very strong, very high potential, very potentially successful employees if you're restricting your hiring pool based on a specific set of characteristics that aren't related to success, whether it's gender or sexuality or ethnicity or any others. Um, whereas if you broaden the talent pool up to anyone who can potentially do a good job to succeed in that role and ignore the kind of irrelevant traits that aren't going to affect performance in the workplace, then you're really strengthening your talent development program by strengthening it right from the bottom up by getting those full range of people that can perform well. Is that a lot of the time this discussion about sexuality and other, you know, ethnic backgrounds and other traits and aspects of diversity, sometimes this conversation is coming from a rights-based approach, uh, you know, almost a legal one in terms of non-discrimination. But you're coming in it, into this conversation from a very different angle of high potentials. So I find that's quite interesting. Yeah, and I think there is, an, there is definitely an ethical, moral, legal argument to make about employment equity and hiring and those issues. But because this is a very practical, very results-oriented book, I really wanted to talk about what the actual evidence for the benefits of broadening the talent pool of equitable hiring are. And the reality we've found is there's a very strong business case for equitable hiring, recruitment, retention policies. Because you want to make sure that you're, if you're hiring and trying to hire the best people to be the best company, you don't want to ignore an entire section of the population that might contribute to your talent pool. Um, you don't want to ignore that range of views that's going to improve the productivity, profitability, effectiveness of your company. You don't want to lose on 
lose out on a whole section of knowledge or experience or um, skills that is going to benefit the company, the team, the group. Um, so I think there's a very strong practical case to make for this. Mm, absolutely. No, that's really, really great. Now, um, Ian, before we go to the last question, may I ask you to share with listeners where they can find the book, where they can find you about your work, where they could maybe get in touch with you? Um, yeah, the book is available. I'm sure it's available on Amazon anywhere. Or if you go through the Kogan Page website, um, the book will be directly available there too. The website will be koganpage.com. Um, and I, if you want to contact me, um, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, and if you just Google Ian McRae Psychology, I will definitely come up and feel free to contact me or ask me any questions about what we've discussed today. That's great. And just for the just for, to clarify, it's I-A-N for Ian, M-A-C-R-A-E for yep. McRae. Thank you. Great. So now coming to the last question, which is always the same on the Work Life podcast, if I could ask you, Ian, one advice to give to a CEO about how they can improve the experience of work for their employees. What would be your advice? Well, absolutely, it would be to buy myths of work. And <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> um, I'm probably not the first person to make that joke. No, it's but... you are the first one, actually, I think. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad. Seriously, my point would be to focus on the facts and really get the evidence. So there's a lot of myths that have been around for hundreds or even thousands of years, like the generational differences myth that can, you can trace back as long as literature exists. There's lots of trends and fads that are coming up, some of which are more effective in the workplace, some of which are less effective, and some of which are completely made up. Um, so the main thing is not to get too distracted um, by all of the commentary about new trends or old trends or some of the arguments, but really to get down to the facts and the evidence. Because if you're a CEO, you need to be making decisions based on the evidence of what is effective in your company, what is effective for employees, what is improving the well-being of employees, because that is consistently and clearly demonstrated to improve kind of productivity, effectiveness, and corporate profitability. But I would really say focus on the facts and don't let those get lost in the chatter. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ian. It was really, really interesting to be talking uh, with you about your book and about your work. Um, I'm sure listeners took away a lot of insight and I just want to wish you, you know, the best of success with the book and, and with your future work. Cool. Thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed it. 